This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, it is wonderful to be back in studio again with you, Pastor Bruss. Today we're going to be doing something that we've actually done before. We're going to be taking a listen to Michael Heiser. You know what's amazing about what he does? When he starts his Naked Bible podcast, which last I saw, he's got like 200 or so episodes on it. So the very first one, actually the first 10, have to do with baptism. And I thought, that is so great that he's starting with this major topic instead of like today, you could listen to Bible podcasts and guys talking about the Bible and they never bring it up. So I think you're going to enjoy this one a little bit better because it's not some sermon. Dr. Heiser goes in and he makes a strong argument and then he's going to build on that. And so that way we can listen to it and then critique along the way. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast. Today, and in fact, for our inaugural podcast, we want to jump into the subject of baptism. The subject of baptism is a favorite of mine because it's a telling example of a point of biblical theology that virtually everyone would think they understand, but it's one that rarely gets close attention when it comes to the biblical text. Not if you're a Lutheran, of course, and, and this is borne out in our very basic catechesis, right? What we do with the children uh, and what every uh, Lutheran kid knows is the basic text, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Romans 6, Titus 3, about the sacrament of uh, holy baptism. They know them inside and out. Yeah, look, uh, not if you're a Lutheran. Now, I know what you're thinking. Come on, Mike. Everyone knows about baptism. What's there to think about? A lot, actually. And I'm not just talking about the debate over whether infants should be baptized or not, or how the mode of baptism is performed. What I'm thinking about goes a lot deeper than that. Christian traditions rarely examine the theological dilemmas that their own positions on baptism cause by creating tension with other points of doctrine. Now, you may not believe that, but I think you will after we're through. So what I'm anticipating here, and I have not listened to this, uh, so this is all tabula rasa for me, but uh, what I'm anticipating uh, is that he's going to bring something like baptism into conflict with uh, justification by faith alone, uh, something like that, uh, as if uh, baptism itself is a work. Uh, This is a typical uh, sort of evangelical trope that that we see. Now, I may be entirely wrong uh, uh, in my judgment here, but this is my anticipation. Can you confirm or deny? I can confirm! Okay. In this first session, I want to briefly define two terms so we're all on the same page. There are a range of viewpoints and associated jargon that come with the topic of baptism, so we need to cover them. First, there's what's known as believer's baptism. That's the belief that only those who have first made a profession of faith in Christ as Savior are proper candidates for baptism. Once baptized, believers become members of the church. Now, one result of this view is that only regenerated believers should be church members. The mode used in believers' baptism might be immersion. It typically is. That is, dipping the recipient in water but it could be sprinkling or pouring. The mode is therefore incidental, at least for this discussion. The key idea here is that the recipient of baptism has to believe before they are baptized. Now, the second option is infant baptism, 
which is also known as pedobaptism. This is the notion that infants, before they are able to believe in Christ, should be baptized. The mode is nearly always sprinkling or pouring, although some Greek Orthodox congregations do immerse infants quickly, I might add. The perceived purpose or effect of baptizing an infant varies. With infant baptism, he's he's got uh, a lot of the definition correct, uh, but, but there's a an additional thing that needs to be added here, and this actually is the position of uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Uh, I believe it's the position of the Roman Catholic Church, and I believe it's the position of the, the Eastern Orthodox. And it's this, that uh, baptism actually bestows the faith that it requires. So uh, he's talking about baptizing a baby before it is able to believe, as if that belief is going to come sometime after the baptism. Um, that is, I mean, that's that's how it's practiced in, say, like the Methodist Church or in the United Church of Christ. They're, the children are kind of, um, through baptism, committed over to God for his care or something like this. Uh, but Lutherans do not believe this. Uh, Lutherans believe that baptism bestows the grace to believe. And uh, we see this in uh, Titus chapter 3, where the Holy Spirit is poured out on us through baptism, and through that, faith is given. In Catholicism, this rite is thought to remove original sin and brings the child into the church, the body of Christ. This idea is often labeled baptismal regeneration by Protestants, but that shouldn't be equated with salvation, though, regardless of what Catholics or Protestants might think on a popular level since other sacraments and practices are necessary for salvation in Roman Catholic teaching. So this whole idea that regeneration is not the same as, as salvation is completely incorrect. Mark sixteen sixteen gives us God's promise. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. And baptism confers the faith that it demands. So, so here, Jesus connects baptism with salvation. Uh, you want salvation? You need to be baptized. Are you baptized? Uh, you got salvation. God has saved you. And and it's through faith. There's no question about it because it gives the faith that's demanded. Now, this other thing that he's saying that, that there are other sacraments necessary for salvation in Roman Catholicism, I, I, I get that. But a couple things. I mean, let you know, he's he's sort of going after, he's tilting at windmills here. If a baby, if a Catholic baby were baptized and then died, Catholics don't teach that that baby is going to hell or even to purgatory. That baby has been saved. That's number one. So the sacraments in Roman Catholicism actually help you remain in the faith, and they actually do some other stuff for you. But look, here, you cannot throw out other, what he's calling Protestant theology, I think what he's talking about is really Lutheran theology, of baptism by, by saying that Roman Catholics have this view, therefore Protestants do as well. I think there's just muddled thinking here. However, the removal of the sin nature removes the condemnation of Adam's sin from the baby so that if it should die, its destiny in heaven is secure. Now, in Protestant or Reformed churches, the meaning of infant baptism varies. The baptized infant does not have the sin nature removed, like in Catholicism, but the infant is made a member of the church. But while Protestants don't want to sound Catholic, a Protestant minister is still likely to presume and teach that the baptism of an infant would have something to do with the infant's secure place in heaven 
should the baby die? More broadly, though, in Protestantism, the relationship of infant baptism and salvation is pretty muddled, even within some very famous creeds, and I'll show you some clear examples of that uh, problem in later podcasts. A fair generalization might be that infant baptism supposedly starts the child on the road to God, so to speak. The baptized infant is said to have been accepted into a covenant relationship with God or Christ, which has some connection to salvation in that Protestants of all stripes believe that the child will eventually, quote-unquote, confirm their baptism. Since baptism was a sign of election, after all, just as circumcision in the Old Testament was. Now, this is going to be his entire point. This is the bedrock of his argument. Circumcision and then baptism, they have to connect and they have to do the exact same thing. Because this is what Paul says in Romans 6, where he talks about uh, circumcision without hands. Okay. It'll be interesting to see where he goes with that. You know, I think for listeners, it's important to realize that when he's talking about Protestants and virtually all Protestants or all Protestants think this way, he is definitely not talking about the Evangelical Lutheran Church. In the Evangelical Lutheran Church, it is not just a sort of committing of the child over to God or placing them inside the covenant or anything like that. Or starting their walk with God? No. These things happen, of course, although the covenant language is sort of strange. Uh, he's drawing that from the, the circumcision. I, I think that the you know the Lutheran perspective on this is the scriptural perspective, that in baptism God saves you. I mean, this is exactly what Luther says. Uh, what what benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe these words. What he's going to point out a little bit later on is is that baptism does not save you, and this is a direct conflict from what Mark says in Mark 16, 16. Correct. And, and, and of Peter. Peter, and, yes, baptism also now saves you, and of Titus chapter 3, uh, where we receive uh, justification, renewal by the Holy Spirit, and become heirs according to the hope of everlasting life. What is heirship uh, unless you already have in the, you know, virtually have in the bank what the benefactor bequeaths? Yes, yes, what the benefactor bequeaths. Or at least that's presumed. In other words, Protestants link infant baptism to being placed into a covenant relationship with God. The problem, of course, is that many baptized infants grow up and do not believe, even though they are children of believing parents. This conscious or unconscious linking of baptism and election to covenant relationship therefore presents a dilemma in the case of those who don't confirm their baptism. So I think his point is baptism does nothing because people walk away. And if it did something, they wouldn't walk away from the faith. Right. And and so I think this is predicated upon a once saved, always saved idea, number one. Number two, did you hear how he talked about election uh, in here and how he's divorced that from uh, from the means of grace? In other words... Uh, you know, one of the one of the horrifying things uh, about Calvinist theology is this: that you can think that you are a full fledged believer in Christ, attend church every Sunday, receive the Lord's Supper, uh, have been baptized, study God's Word all the time assiduously, and still not be elect. 
And Lutheran theology does not work in this way at all. God unmasks himself. He takes off the hood, if you will. He comes into the flesh of Jesus. He bears the sins of the world. And then what he does in that further unmasking is that he sends all the gifts won by Jesus into the world in baptism, in the sacrament of the altar, and through his word. So that when you hear his word, you can know that God is serious about saving you. And if you end up not being saved, guess what? That's all on you. God is standing right in front of you saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever believes in me has everlasting salvation. And you're saying, nah, I don't care for it. Or they're saying, well, I believe in you, but I'm, uh, you know, I don't see the big deal about baptism. Sure. In the Calvinistic or in the evangelical perspective, I guess you're probably right. I just make a decision and, yeah, I will assent to, to, to this. I'll, I'll buy into you, Jesus, make you my homeboy. But anything further than that, no, no go. Yeah. And, and what that is, so, so there's an election problem here, right, uh, that, that we are elect apart from God's means of grace. And there's a Holy Spirit problem here as well. And the Holy Spirit problem is that the work of the Spirit is divorced from the work of the, of the Word and the sacraments. So now, can God send his Spirit out uh, to condemn somebody? Absolutely. Right? He, he absolutely can. How do you know? Well, it's if you, if you hear the word and you're confirmed in your unbelief. So yeah. the Spirit's at work in the word all the time. I want to make sure, especially for our evangelical listeners, mm-hmm. we've talked about this before, how the Spirit is this force or this feeling generator or what have you. When you talk about the Holy Spirit coming, there's going to be a mouth and a nose of a person associated with, with that Holy Spirit working, just like the prophets in the Old Testament. And a hand. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's something you can see. There's something you can hear. It's not an inner dialogue that one is having. Right. The Augsburg Confession, Article 5, comes to this, right? In order that we may obtain such faith, the preaching office was instituted. Uh, That is, the, the, the means of grace were given, word and sacrament, through which God creates the faith. Let me touch on this election thing. Coming from a reform background, you know, when you start thinking about election and moving into those waters, I mean, aren't you dealing with what Luther called the naked God here, that you're peeping in on the naked God, you're, you're trying to uh, unscrew the inscrutable, so to speak? I, I think you're right. It's not that election is unrevealed in Scripture. It's revealed, right, that God has chosen his elect in eternity. Uh, you see it in Romans chapter 8 as an example. So it's not that we can't talk about election. It's just that we have to talk about election in the right way. God gave the doctrine as a comfort to troubled consciences, not as a hammer for the unbelievers. Or a crystal ball to, you know, discern who's in and who's out. Right. Good. And now, and so this is how, how a Lutheran answers the question of election. Okay, so I'm, I'm deeply troubled by my sin. I'm sure that God cannot be pleased with me because of my sinful life. Am I going to heaven? What's the answer? Are you baptized? Have you received the sacrament? Have you heard the pastor say, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? If the answer is yes to all those things, then you can know that God has elected you. Uh, He has chosen to bring you his 
means of grace and is serious about saving you. But we would also say as Lutherans, because the Reformers pick up on this, that David, in his sin, had not Nathan gone to him. Now here's the Holy Spirit going to him with a nose and a mouth and and, and a finger or a hand, as you say, (laughs) pointing at him, saying, you're the man. Had David continued in that unrepentant state, his soul, I don't even want to say it was at jeopardy. He was destined for hell. Exactly. Yes, he was in that unrepentant sin. And this is the operation of law and gospel. So this distinction between law and gospel that you have pointed out so often on this that is so critical to understand that the law, when it fingers you, it's not pussyfooting. It is condemning you. And when the gospel fingers you, it is not pussyfooting. It is freeing you from all of your sins and giving you everlasting salvation. It gives rise to questions like, did the baptism not work? Whatever that might mean. Did election fail? Or maybe there's no connection between baptism and election. In which case, what exactly is baptism good for and why is it necessary? Or maybe the Calvinist idea of perseverance, that is, the idea that the elect will, in the end, believe. Maybe that should just be scrapped. But if that's the case, that also raises the question of the necessity of baptism. If an elect person will believe in the end after all, baptizing them as infants doesn't matter. He's exactly right, if you're a Calvinist, uh, but not if you're a Lutheran. If you're a Lutheran, the only way that God can uh, effect his election is through his means of grace. That's how he does it. It's usually at this point that Reformed parents or pastors will say something about baptism being needed for getting the baby into the covenant in case it dies before profession of faith or something like that. I really don't know how that reflects the Reformed idea of faith alone, but that question is usually avoided. And these questions really are just the tip of the iceberg. Now, less important for the theological meaning of baptism is the mode, that is, how it's to be done. We've already touched on that a little bit, but while we're introducing concepts here, we should say a few things about that too. Baptism by immersion, again, refers to dipping the recipient underwater to illustrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Baptists do that once, while brethren churches typically dip the recipient three times. It's called triune immersion. They do it in the name of the Father, and then of the Son, and then of the Spirit. In the mode of sprinkling, the minister or priest dips his hand into the water and sprinkles it onto the head of the recipient of baptism, whether they're an infant or an adult. And pouring would be just what it sounds like. The recipient gets a lot wetter than he would if he or she was only sprinkled. I think it's time for a challenge uh, in our thinking about baptism. Let's start with this problem or this issue. Where in the world do various denominations get these ideas? While they would all say the Bible, that can't be coherent since there's so much divergence. In reality, these ideas come about on the basis of certain presuppositions brought to various passages, and here's where I get into trouble, sloppy thinking about the results. What I mean by the latter is that people are content to not examine where certain ideas lead, assuming that ideas can be held in theological isolation from other parts of theology. 
It really never ceases to amaze me how disconnected and incoherent the topic of baptism comes across in sermons, Sunday school teaching, and even theology books. One example will suffice for the time that remains here in this first podcast. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, Paul tells us the following. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, all positions on baptism rightly note that this passage has some connection between baptism and circumcision. Paul doesn't really tell us what that is, but that's okay. He tells us enough that should keep us from bad theology, but unfortunately it hasn't. Now, what I mean by that is that there's a connection between baptism and circumcision. Okay, if there is a connection, then it seems reasonable to think that what we say about the meaning of one ought to be consistent with the meaning of the other. Sounds simple enough, but it's rarely followed. Now, everything that he's been saying up at this point, this intro into the differences, I have to totally agree with him on that. Except for the things that we've already pointed out as problematic, right? What you're but that yeah, yeah, little but intro little yeah, right there. Yep, yep. I would agree with that. That there are that there is sloppy thinking, and that that it results in bad preaching and bad teaching on this. There's and, no question about it. But they all say that they, it comes from the Bible, but then they go to these presuppositions. Correct. And the presuppositions are wrong, and thus, as a result of that, when as you do what Mike here, I'll call him Mike because he's calling himself Mike. When Mike says that, when you extrapolate that out, that's where it gets all wonky. Right, and you start to shoehorn passages into into your schema, right, your preconceived ideas. I, I think he's exactly right, and um, that's that's why I think Lutheran theology is so beautiful, because it just it rests with the Word alone, and everything that is said, not must be derived from the Word, right, but must be an accurate uh, representation of precisely what God himself says. Uh, one thing I want to critique here in his reading of Colossians is Yeah, that, I think I said it was from Romans earlier, but yeah, Col- right. the Colossians yeah, passage. Colossians chapter 2, where he's talking about this uh, circumcision not made with hands, and so we've got to connect baptism with circumcision. Well, Paul obviously does, but now here's his presupposition. Let's expose this. He wants to run this out so that there must be a one-to-one correspondence between circumcision and baptism. That's exactly what he's going to do. And what he's saying is that we do this elsewhere in the scriptures. Well, this is not exactly this is not exactly correct, okay? So let's let's talk about where these things are incorrect. First of all, John chapter 3, the son of man being lifted up and Jesus talks about uh, just as the uh, serpent was uh, lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he, he talks about salvation through uh, looking uh, upon the Son of Man uh, lifted up upon the cross. Well, the salvation that was given to the Israelites uh, in Numbers when they looked at the fiery serpent, the bronze fiery serpent on a pole, was a salvation from this temporary affliction of death by being bitten by the <clears throat> the serpent. So the analogy doesn't hold true because the salvation that is granted through Christ, looking upon Christ lifted up in faith, is an eternal salvation. 
So you've got a comparison of a minor thing to a far more major thing. But the Bible is filled of lesser to greater arguments. All over the place. All over the place. Yeah. But but you can't draw a one-to-one analogy, right? No. This is the point. You can't say, oh, well, looking at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross gives you a temporary salvation from a snake bite or, you know, a car accident or something like that. Then there are places where in Pauline rhetoric, Paul actually, he, he makes an analogy, but uses uses the analogy for, for a juxtaposition, right? So he talks about the ministry of the letter versus the ministry of the spirit. Well, what is the ministry of the letter? The ministry of the letter is the written word of God in Moses, particularly the condemnatory law, and that brings condemnation. Well, the ministry of the spirit brings life. Okay, well, here, here Paul is playing off of the Old Testament analogy. So there is no lining up in that particular instance. In this one, yes, Paul, uh, we're talking now about Colossians 2, Paul is using the analogy of, of circumcision. But if his idea is that he is going to press this thing to the last point, we're going to be in trouble because guess who is the only people who are going to be baptized? Eight-day-old Jewish boys. That's a problem, because that's what the analogy would suggest if you're going to follow it out to the nth. Now, insisting on this consistency between the two items Paul links eliminates common ideas like baptism erasing the sin nature or baptism have something, having something to do with the forgiveness of sin. How in the world can he say that? I have no idea, Pastor Kearns. This is crazy talk because what he's done here is he's taken one passage of Scripture and he's playing it against others, right? So, uh, you know, what I'm thinking about uh, is Romans 6, number 1, and Titus chapter 3. He will bring these up, by the way. But the thing is, is that we're not going to let him interpret it. Right. We'll read it. We'll interpret it. Correct. And then listen to his his way of dealing with it. Mm -hmm. So, Pastor Kearns, what he has just said is that uh, this idea where you're linking uh, circumcision to baptism eliminates every idea of the forgiveness of sins. And so I just want to read from Titus chapter 3. This begins at verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is justification by grace except for the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ? And if I'm not mistaken, a little bit later on, Mike will say that there's no water in that passage. Oh, okay, I see. There's no water in the passage, so it doesn't count. That's what he'll say. Well, okay. I mean, I'm not going to grant that to him. No, don't. No, no, we can't. We can't. It's a baptismal passage. All right, so in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 begins, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, i.e. baptism, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, if that doesn't speak to the direct correlation between baptism and a forgiveness of sin. I don't know what does. He continues. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And I hate to do this, but you skip verse 7, which is uh, uh, it's just your eye playing tricks on you, right? For one who has died has been set free from sin. Clearly. That's the verse. This is the mo- this is the money, right? I, but the, but the point is this: that 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 the forgiveness of sins is clearly connected by Paul to baptism. And I, I mean, look, we're not cherry picking stuff here. Acts chapter two, thirty eight and following, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. There, again, the connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sins couldn't be clearer. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I believe St. Paul says it twice. First time when it happens, and then later in Acts 22 or what have you, where he recounts the story, and he talks specifically about baptism for the forgiveness of sins. This is what Ananias says to him. So this is all over the New Testament. So the point is this. If he's going to use Colossians 2 as his fulcrum for understanding all baptism well what he's what he's actually doing we can see this is he's using it to destroy the rest of what the old or the new testament says about baptism or that baptism guarantees anyone's eventual faith since circumcision did none of those things according to the old testament the old testament is filled with episodes even on a national scale of jews who were circumcised falling into apostasy their circumcision had no necessary connection to being believers. You could go down the line on all sorts of things that uh, where God uh, promises to work through his word and his sacraments, where the hardness of the heart uh, doesn't result uh, in faith, right? So uh, think about um, just because you've heard the word doesn't mean you're going to be saved. And yet, God uses the word to save. This is Romans chapter 10 stuff. Very, very basic, easy stuff. Baptism is no guarantee that you're going to remain in the faith forever, but it is the way that God gives you his grace and wants to give you his grace. This is what he decrees in the scriptures. And so, if you are troubled and looking for the question, can I possibly have faith? Can I possibly stand in God's grace? What do you say? You say, have I heard the word of Christ? And have I been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Then the answer is yes. You have been taken into God's grace. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been given faith. It's weak, but you've been given faith. And it's not the strength of faith that saves. This is just really poor argumentation, isn't it? Think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh's another good example where the word of God is coming to him time after time after time. And what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart. He hardens hardens his heart. But God didn't set out to harden the Pharaoh's heart. God set out to bring the Pharaoh to repentance. But then when he would not repent, then God started to harden Pharaoh's heart. Correct. He gave him exactly what he was looking for. And when circumcision was first commanded of Abraham back in Genesis 17, all his servants had to be circumcised too, whether they believed in Abraham's God or not. They weren't even asked. And if circumcision, and therefore baptism, has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sin or faith, it can't be used as a basis for things like believing infants who die are in heaven because of their baptism. If baptism 
doesn't have to do with it. He is correct about his conclusion. However, the scriptures clearly say that baptism works salvation. Mark 16, Titus chapter 3. That it works the forgiveness of sins, Acts chapter 2. And the points that you have already drawn out from Paul's um, accounts of his own uh, conversion, Acts chapter 22. This is bad theology. It's not hard to press the presumed meaning of the connection between baptism and circumcision even farther. What about women? That question needs answering since women were not circumcised in Israel. And by the way, that isn't a silly thing to say either since Middle Eastern cultures, even in modern times, practice female circumcision. Since Israelite women were not circumcised, they either weren't members of the covenant community or membership in the covenant community was not exclusively linked to the act of circumcision. And that issue would certainly affect how we'd look at the meaning of baptism. This goes back to the point earlier of the lesser to the greater. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if circumcision was only for the boys, but then just by default, the girls got the same benefits, what have you. Being in the covenant is basically what he's saying. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Baptism doesn't stop with just the boys. God wants to give the gifts to everybody. Boy, girl, man, woman. So that they can actually say, this belongs to me, and not to me by virtue of my husband or my dad or something like that. Right. Yeah. Again, yeah. it's that lesser to greater yeah. argument. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good uh, lesser to greater kind of thing. Um, and, and I think there's a presumption that baptism must function in exactly the same way as circumcision. I don't want to explore the question of whether circumcision gives forgiveness of sins and salvation. I, I just don't want to talk about that right now because I don't think it even matters. We've got the clear testimony of the New Testament scriptures about what baptism does, and that is the last final word on it. Yeah, that's, that's what he's saying. What he's saying, uh, no, I, I mean, what he's saying is, is that we have, to, we have to read the New Testament passages that are clear about baptism uh, in light of circumcision, which doesn't do anything. So, so basically, isn't he saying that the New Testament is lying about what baptism does? I hope you can see that there is actually a lot to think about here. In the podcasts that follow, I'll be giving you answers to these and other questions that are rooted in the text of Scripture, not in a theological tradition. My focus over the next few podcasts will be infant baptism, and after that's covered, we'll move on to some other things. So what do you think, Pastor Kearns? By way of summary, uh, having listened to this, what are your thoughts? He is creating a new doctrine. He's using the word baptism. And I'm grateful that he's not really talking about the mode and saying that the mode really is not important. I'm with him there. He's spinning something that, that's totally new. And I'm reminded of how when I graduated uh, from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, the president said, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. And I'm hearing here something totally new. I would agree. Uh, I, it, it almost reminds me of a graduate student uh, who's trying to write a dissertation, right? And in order for that dissertation to make a splash, You've got to come at uh, something that's been dealt with forever uh, with a new perspective. 
And I think that's what he's trying to do here. Uh, but but it, to me, what's interesting is your comment uh, that 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 what this is, this isn't just a new perspective. This is going to give us a new doctrine of baptism. And we're already seeing that this thing is standing on on wobbly legs. I mean, these legs have been sawn off the bottom of the stool and the top is sitting there. Uh, but boy, you move a little bit and it's going to tumble right over. I mean, isn't this a sickness in the church? And isn't this where uh, we get the development of things like Mormonism, uh, where, you know, somebody like Joseph Smith, there's, there are little snippets of Christianity in there, but there's this whole invented thing that that is nothing like what Christ instituted. And after all of these podcasts are done, if I'm not mistaken, Mike's conclusion is going to be that circumcision brought you into a community where you could hear the truth. And that's all baptism does. It introduces you to a community of believers where you can hear the truth. And that's it. Boy, I'll tell you what, all you got to do is uh, pack your kid up in the pack and play or whatever. What are these little car seats called, right? And bring them in to church if that's, if that's all it is. What, what, a, what a sorry theology this is. And um, what's surprising to me is for a biblical scholar, a person of authority, no less, to be speaking like this. Uh, and um, I, f- I feel bad for the people who've listened to this and bought into it. All right, so let's listen to his second podcast. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast. In the previous podcast, I briefly introduced the topic of baptism. After defining some terms, I used Paul's link between baptism and circumcision in Colossians 2, 11 and 12 to briefly illustrate the kinds of trouble denominational articulations of baptism produce since Paul's linking of these two items demands that what we say about one, we need to be able to say about the other. This is especially crucial when it comes to any doctrine of infant baptism, since honoring this interpretive requirement shows the illogic of a lot of what is said by various creeds and denominations about infant baptism. But I'll go even further. It also demonstrates that a lot of what is said about infant baptism has no basis in the biblical text. But as we'll see, that doesn't invalidate the idea per se. You can construct a biblical theology of infant baptism. It's just that the creeds that we often use really confuse things. Now, lest listeners think I'm being a little bit too critical, in the next few podcasts, I'll be going directly to some well-known Protestant creeds to illustrate the confusion created within those creeds in regard to what is said about salvation by grace through faith and infant baptism and baptism in general. Now, having been a church member in the past in the Reformed tradition, I can tell you firsthand that lay people and even pastors have great difficulty resolving the internal contradictions of their own creeds. Part of the problem is that few people actually read them thoughtfully and critically. When I've asked Reformed pastors if they can justifiably say the same things about circumcision and Old Testament salvation that their creeds say about baptism and its effect on the recipient, I have yet to find any that would feel comfortable doing so. So, Pastor Kearns, you have something to say about that. Yeah, I think... 
That is very interesting to me. I mean, I get what he's saying. He is being, he's got some barbs there. You know, nobody reads these creeds and these pastors can't, you know, really flush out what these creeds are trying to say or, or live by them fully. But then when he says, I have yet to find anybody to relate circumcision and baptism as being able to do the exact same thing, it's almost like what you said just a few moments ago about how it's a graduate student trying to find some new twist on some old topic that's been rehashed and rehashed. And so they're, they're going to come at it some way as to try to present their own doctrine. That's case in point, it seems to me. That, that is a really interesting observation. So, uh, you know, basically what he's done is he's taken this passage from Colossians and turned it into the, the one thing that you need to read all of baptism passages through. And so he, what he's doing is he's making Paul's interesting analogy here, which we actually need to explore a little bit, I think. That's the starting and ending point of the entire conversation on baptism. Now, why that should be the case is a real head-scratcher when baptism elsewhere in the scriptures is spoken of in sort of terms that don't necessarily relate it to the Old Testament. But still, I think it's fascinating that he can't get Reformed pastors to say that circumcision does the same thing as baptism does. We would say it absolutely does. It, it makes you an heir of the promises of Abraham. Right. And then on top of that, at some point, he's got to take this new way of looking at baptism, and that's got to be submitted to the biblical text in that we don't elevate our—I think you said it just a few moments ago— it's like we take the new perspective and we place it over top of the biblical text, and then we try to interpret the biblical text through the lens of the new perspective. Right, right. It, Rather it, than just letting the scriptures say what they say. Yeah, so, so in other words, he's turning his sedes doctrinae for baptism. Uh, he's turning this Colossians passage into a sedes doctrinae. Now, that's not to say it is not a sedes doctrinae. There's plenty of wonderful stuff said here about baptism, right? Uh, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Right? This is exactly the teaching of Paul in Romans chapter 6, uh, in Titus chapter 3, I mean, you just sort of go on, and it's, it's all over the place. Well, then on top of that, he's going to use these Reformed creeds that you and I would say are out to lunch when it comes to the sacraments. They come close, but they're not going to give you the whole enchilada. So he's going to use these creeds that are a little bit off base, a little bit crooked, to then establish his own crookedness? That is just a great observation, and that's what he's going to do. It's unfortunate that he didn't look at the Lutheran confession on this at all. Correct. So let's let him spin his yarn. I've also never found any who have attempted the exercise seriously. To say the least, that's disappointing. Let's start by looking at the Belgic Confession, a creed to which many Reformed churches subscribe. I'll be reading several passages and adding my own comments to help us focus on the problems. Article 22, Our Justification Through Faith in Christ. Quote, We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith, 
which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. For it must needs follow, either that all things which are requisite to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, or if all things are in him, that then those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Unquote. Now the important phrasing here is that believers possess Jesus Christ through faith. It's a clear statement of the gospel. And here we are agreeing with Mike as well as the Belgic Confession. This is a beautiful statement of the gospel. There's very little to object to here at all. But here's kind of the um, devil in the details, where he says, possess Jesus Christ through faith. He is totally going to say, that's how it comes to us, in that baptism does nothing. We, as Lutherans, would say, baptism distributes the goods. This is how we get what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He's saying, no, it's all newetic. It's all faith. It's all inside the person. There's nothing that comes from the outside. You know, we, we hear this with Baptist theology too, don't we? Uh, where you pit uh, through faith alone without works of the law against the divinely established rite of baptism as a means of grace and say that baptism's a work, therefore baptism cannot be a way of having Christ. It's just really bad reasoning. Sure, and we've done this time and time again with other preachers, but I think to at least have a guy who's going to go to Reformed creeds and, you know, read them, I mean, we have them in front of us here. He is reading them word for word and stopping to comment on them. I mean, this is this is great argumentation but we're starting to see here's the difference between a Reformed tradition and the Lutheran tradition. Right, and what's interesting is that he's even distancing himself from the Reformed tradition on top of it all. Uh, there's a misunderstanding, I think. I think what we're going to see is a misunderstanding of the Reformed tradition. Yeah, because he's got his own perspective. Correct. But let's continue. Quote, Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required besides him, would be too gross a blasphemy. For hence it would follow that Christ was but half a savior. Unquote. So, salvation is through Christ alone. Good. How does one get that salvation? Well, by possessing Christ through faith. That's good again. Yes, it is good, but it's not clear. This confession? Yes, this confession, as well as what he's intimating. Absolutely. You can see already where he's going with this very clearly. What he's going to say is that since he has just said, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required besides Christ would be too gross a blasphemy, what he's going to say is that that rules baptism out. Correct. Now, here's the problem. It is true that... In possessing Christ through faith, we have salvation. Here's the question. He said, that's how we get salvation. He's exactly right. The question is, how do we get Christ through faith? And this is the issue. And I would just go a step further. I mean, if he's going to say that it's just Jesus alone, well, uh, what about Jesus's works? What about Jesus's death? What about, right, that's not Jesus if he's going to use this in this way against baptism, uh, I think you can turn that right against him and say, 
look, be reasonable about this and look at the record of Scripture instead of trying to concoct an argument off of a deficient confession. Isn't this a denial of God using means? That's where he's headed, clearly, isn't it? But to deny that with baptism, I mean, this now this is like a house of cards. You take the Lord using means out of this systematic theology, gaping, gaping hole. Right, you're creating a, just a, a massive—I was just thinking about this— um, you know, uh, if, if it's Jesus alone, then what of Mary? I mean, did the Lord use Mary to bring the Savior of the world into the world? The of course. Is yes, and so do you need Mary? Yeah. Yes, you need Mary, but she needed to have breasts. R- right, and right? milk. And milk to be able to take care of this baby. So the Lord uses means. Of course. Look, somebody could hear this and go, oh, that doesn't prove that the Lord uses means. Where do we stop when we think about the Lord using means. See, the evangelical is caught up on this whole idea of God only being miraculous and doing these things where the natural world is suspended so that God moves and works. Everything becomes a burning bush that is not consumed by the fire. Everything. This is the only way that God works. At the denial of really reality. And instead of thinking that that maybe it's the case that the Lord has made the entire created order specifically to bring salvation to fallen human beings through the created order by his own schema, uh, sure, schema, his own way of thinking, he shouldn't even have to do a podcast about any theological topic whatsoever because the Lord doesn't use means. Let's go back to the creed. Quote. Therefore, we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone, or by faith apart from works. However, to speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, for it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. But Jesus Christ, imputing to us all his merits, and so many holy works which he has done for us and in our stead, is our righteousness and faith is an instrument that keeps us in communion with him in all his benefits which when they become ours are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins Unquote. so this article basically tells us that faith is the conduit through which the benefits of Christ's work come to the believer no, it's not that. It's, what it's saying is that in, in Lutheran dogmatic terms, faith is the organon receptivum, the uh, receiving organ that holds the benefits of Christ. And so it, it, this isn't asking the question how they come. It's saying how are they held. He threw in the word conduit. That's not in the Belgic Confession. Not at all. And you're saying that faith clings to, grabs hold of, say, the promise. Right. But there's a conduit for the promise, and this is what he's missing. The conduit for the promise is the means. Right. It's It's, the preacher. It's the Word of God. It's something external. It's not the faith. It's as if the promise or the benefits of Christ have, have been laid in a person's lap, which is just sitting there doing nothing, and then the lap becomes the holder of them. Well, how did they get in the lap? It's not the lap. 
but that's what he's asserting. Somebody else put the benefits in the lab. This is, folks, uh, I mean, this is big stuff. Uh, it, it sounds picayune, but it's hardly picayune. But this is why discernment is needed, because there are these these slight differences, and they have to be viewed correctly, or they can be easily misunderstood. You're, you're exactly right. And actually, what happens is you, it, when you make a small mistake like this, which, okay, seems like a small mistake. It's actually a huge mistake. But let's just grant for the moment that most people are going to hear this as a small mistake. What happens is you build an inverted pyramid, a theological pyramid, over this whole thing. You construct an entire theology on the basis of a false premise. And the result is, as you have pointed out so many times on this podcast, that Basically, you wind up with this horrible introspection on the part of the American evangelical who can find no comfort against the blackness of his own heart because all he sees inside is that blackness, or they're going to turn into a Pharisee. Correct. Saying, I'm the one who's living this inverted pyramid that I've been taught, and I'm pulling it off beautifully. I'm doing great. So we've already seen what he's doing. He's talking about faith and justification and how there's no works involved in that. And now what he's going to do is he's going to use the same confession. And as you said, he's going to pit baptism against justification. Because he is going to call baptism a human work. Right. We are saved by his merit, not our work. No merit of our own. The creed is very clear here about the gospel and salvation. But watch how muddled things become when we hit the section on baptism. Belgic Confession, Article 34, Holy Baptism. Quote, We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law, has made an end, by the shedding of his blood, of all other sheddings of blood which men could or would make as a propitiation or satisfaction for sin, and that he, having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, has instituted the sacrament of baptism instead thereof, by which we are received into the church of God and separated from all other people and strange religions, that we may wholly belong to him whose mark and ensign we bear, and which serves as a testimony to us that he will forever be our gracious God and Father." Unquote. This part of the creed says plainly that those who are baptized belong to Christ. And anyone who knows even a little bit about the Reformed tradition knows that it, of course, practices infant baptism. One problem is now obvious. Every Reformed church member or pastor knows someone who was baptized, but who later forsook the faith. So, Pastor Kearns, this is dense and subtle, what he's doing here, and for that he's to be applauded. I mean, he's really wrestling with some interesting things. I think there are two separate issues that, at this point, uh, need to be addressed. The very first one it has to do with this business of the shedding of blood. And here, in the, in the confession, we actually see a false view of what the Old Testament shedding of blood was. The Old Testament shedding of blood in the temple sacrifices uh, and even the coincidental shedding of blood in the circumcision was not a propitiatory sacrifice. It was 
the way that the Lord delivered to the people the propitiation that Christ was going to win on his holy cross. So in other words, the sacrificial stuff going on in the temple, the circumcision that was performed on little Jewish boys was not the propitiation itself. It was the delivery mechanism for the propitiation. In other words, it was a means of grace. So I think what he's going to say, though, right, uh, here's what the Belgic Confession says. It, it, it talks about circumcision being abolished, which was done with blood and has now, the Lord has now instituted the sacrament of baptism instead thereof. And what he's going to say is, look, this Belgic Confession makes an analogy with circumcision. He's going to say circumcision was a propitiatory shedding of blood. Therefore, it was a work of the law. Therefore, baptism is a work of the law. Well, the problem is that the confession itself is doesn't get what the Old Testament sacrificial system and circumcision were all about. So they make a, an incorrect slide out of the Old Testament into the New and must actually, incorrectly, claim that baptism is some sort of propitiatory sacrifice by their own logic. That's number one. So we'll concede his point. I mean, it's if he makes this point. The second one is this. What he's doing is he is throwing common experience into our face and saying, look, there are people who have fallen away from the faith who have been baptized as infants. Ergo. It does nothing. It obviously does nothing. So he's already starting to chip away here. I mean, it was very, very subtle in the first article about justification by faith and faith alone. We, we knew he was picking up the axe, so to speak. Now he just took his first swing right here by using experience as opposed to what the Word of God says about baptism. Right, and let's let's talk about what the what the promise of baptism is. Right, I mean, I think this is an important thing. The promise of baptism is that right now, through my baptism, the Lord delivers to me a bunch of stuff. He delivers me the Holy Spirit, which Titus says. He delivers me justification, which is the forgiveness of sins. That's well, what Titus says. Acts chapter 2 says very clearly it's the forgiveness of sins. Right. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of all of your sins. And he makes me an heir of everlasting life. That's also what Titus chapter 3 says. So all these things are given to me in my baptism. My faith clings to the justification and my uh, inheritance of everlasting life in the here and now, looking forward to its eschatological fulfillment on the last day. That's the foreverness. That's how God is forever my God. But here's the deal. If I turn around and throw away the gifts that the Lord has given me, I no longer have God as a saving God on the last day. Now, does that mean that he doesn't want to continue to save me? Absolutely not. He still wants to save me. It's just that I've thrown it back in his face. So, again, it's probably the case that the Belgic Confession has picked up echoes of solid Lutheran theology. And let's not forget that Lutheran theology precedes Calvinistic theology. It comes before. Has picked up snippets of it, over-systematized it, or tried to iron things out, and has come up with some false conceptions about what, what the scriptures teach. I have so many thoughts right now, I don't even know which one to grab hold of. I'll grab hold of this one. When you think about the Imago Dei being restored, that was lost in the fall. 
and you think about the work of Christ in being our reconciliation to reconcile us not just to God but also to one another where we are living in sync with God and each other in the Imago Dei, you think, how does this begin? Like you just talked about how it ends, the telos, how it's all going to come together in the eschaton when we have a new heavens and a new earth in a glorified body. That process begins for us at our baptism. It begins there as process, and when you possess it at your baptism through faith, you possess it in the eschaton already. I mean, isn't isn't this the point? Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is not us making this up, right? I mean, this is the, the new creation. How does the new creation come about for the individual? It's through their baptism. And so what you're saying is when one punts that, look at everything that you're punting. And what comes flooding back in is all of the evils that, that are uh, in, in the absence of the good. How is it then that this part of the Belgic Confession can be considered coherent? But there's another problem. Just how does baptism make us belong to Christ? Is the intended meaning that baptism accomplishes this status? That is, it puts us in Christ which the New Testament equates with salvation, or is it something else? I'm in pain. I'm flabbergasted. What he's doing is he is pitting being in Christ against baptism and the clear witness of Scripture. Well, that's what we've been saying. He's taking his new perspective, even though he's just said this is what the Scripture says, that baptism does make you in Christ. He said it. It clearly is what it is. But yet he's dismissive. Nah, it's not it. Uh, and, and actually, do we hear, is there an echo here, do you think, of the idea of once saved, always saved? So that if you fall away from your baptism, you obviously weren't always saved, which means you weren't in Christ, which means that baptism must not put you into Christ. Well, see, this is the problem with Reformed theology. It over logicizes is it, what's the word I'm Syllog- looking for? it's a syllogism that's not even found what you just said is not even found in the scriptures it's like what you said a few moments ago it's all based on human experience right and 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 what that does is it's used as the trump card against what the scriptures say so let us hear what the scriptures say this is saint paul in uh, romans chapter 6 do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into christ jesus were so Baptized where? Into Christ Jesus. So baptism connects us with Jesus. We're baptized into his death. Oh, what else do I get? I get his death for the for the sins of the world. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death. Oh, my goodness. I've been buried with Christ even. Now, what does that mean for what happens? Doesn't he rise from the dead? Yeah, he doesn't. Oh. He does death. But he doesn't do it very long. No. He comes up out of the grave. Exactly. So he goes on and says, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The There's new that life. N- new creation. Oh, yes. You're exactly right. The restoration of the imago dei. So go on. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In baptism, his death and resurrection become my death and resurrection. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. 
For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That doesn't say what you're saying it's saying, Pastor Bros. Let's just let's just let the words of the Bible speak for themselves, shall we? No, we let the scholar speak for us. <laughs> Why would someone be so dismissive of something so wonderful that the Lord wants to do? I thought you were going to ask the question, why would somebody who purportedly takes the Scripture so seriously flatly deny the plain words of Scripture? Even a better question. Especially when they so clearly speak about the wonderful things that the Lord wants to do for you that you can't possibly do for yourself. Is it because he's so tenaciously holding on still to his new perspective, this new doctrine that he's going to build this inverted pyramid on? I'm wondering now if the new perspective that he's trying to, that he's going to get from Colossians, I'm wondering if what drives his finding that new perspective is that is that he found the new perspective or that he's got these hang-ups with infant baptism and now he's found the what he thinks is the chink in the armor, and he's going to go through it. But he's going through it rationally instead of biblically. But he's using the Bible to justify his rational arguments. Good. And let's put a talk a little bit about rationality just very quickly. Rationality, I mean, are, are Pastor Kearns and I being irrational at this point in time? The answer is no. So we're not pitting reason against the scriptures, but he is. That's his problem. What we're doing is we're using our reason in submission to what the Word of God says. What he's doing is he is using his reason to determine what the Word of God must be saying because it fits with his reason. It is the Garden of Eden all over again. Now, this idea that baptism accomplishes the status of being in Christ would contradict what we just read in the confession about salvation by grace through faith. Is the intended meaning, alternatively, that baptism only sort of marks those who belong to Christ? This idea would make baptism a sort of identifier of those who are elect and who will believe. And so baptism has some connection to those who are in Christ anyway. But then how is it that people who are baptized can drift away from the faith? Were they mismarked? If that's the case, then baptism as a rite has no efficacy for sure, but it also isn't a completely accurate indicator of the elect either. So what good is it? What good is it? It gives and offers what God wants to give and offer in Christ. It, it applies everything that Christ has won to an individual. It creates faith. That faith in the promises clings to those promises, and therefore possesses those promises. But can people fall away from the faith? This is the problem. He, he, he's, got, he's got a preconception that it's impossible to fall away from the faith. Was David in the faith when he was diddling Bathsheba and murdering her husband? No. No, he had totally rejected the God of Israel. So he is saying that since people fall away— Thus, baptism is not efficacious. It has no effect. It has no determinative 
result. Right. Again, I think this this probably has to do with the problem that either is in this confession or in his own mind about what it means to possess in the here and now the eschatological realization of baptism. So right now, uh, as a baptized believer, all of Christ's stuff has been given to me, and I possess it by faith, which means that on the last day, viewed from this point in time, I have a not guilty verdict and uh, come inherit the kingdom which was prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That's what I have. But it doesn't mean that it's impossible for me to reject all of these gifts. I'm still fighting against my old Adam all the time. He is continuously whispering in my ear, is it really so? Wouldn't it be better to be outside of the faith? Wouldn't your life look different? Couldn't you get away with a lot more stuff? Well, the answer is, of course, yes. So there's this constant battle in the believer. And sometimes believers succumb to it. But sometimes they repent. And are brought back to the water of their baptism. Not only are we pointing out Mike's flawed thinking, but we're also seeing that the Belgic Confession is wrong as well. This is why we're not of the Reformed tradition. As you said earlier, they're close, but they don't get the cigar. No, but it's also the blind leading the blind here. So you're saying <laughs> you're saying precisely what Mike needs is to listen to this podcast or and hear salutary Lutheran theology or just to make it easier on Mike come to Topeka, Kansas <laughs> and let's have a debate. There you go. That'd be so go. great. I would be there in the front row. I'd moderate. How's that? That'd be a blast. I moderate between you and Mike. Who knows how we'd do that, right? And there might but. be 3 people who actually come and you listen and me to and Mike. <laughs> <laughs> the real question, of course, is whether any of this is biblical. Recall that one of our tests for, for that was whether the idea honors Paul's connection between baptism and circumcision. Can we coherently say about circumcision what the creed says about baptism to this point? We cannot say what the creed says, that is, what the Belgic Confession says, because the Belgic Confession has a misunderstanding of what circumcision is. It regards circumcision as a propitiatory shedding of blood on the part of the individual to reconcile himself with God. What the scriptures teach is that God is doing the work in circumcision and applying to the individual who is circumcised everything that Christ will win when he comes into the flesh, lives the perfect life, suffers and dies in his place. Now, here's the thing. Can we honor what Paul says? Yes, we can honor what Paul says in the way that Paul means it, but not in the way that Heiser wants to take it. He's reading it through the improper lens of this Belgic Confession does not regard circumcision as a means of grace, but as a propitiatory sacrifice, a work done by us to reconcile ourselves to God. So let's see how he answers his own question. No, we can't. We have the same set of problems, but there's more in the creed that is a concern. Let's keep going. Same article on holy baptism. Quote, Therefore, he has commanded all those who are his to be baptized with pure water, Continuing, quote, We believe, therefore, that every man who is earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal ought to be baptized but once with this only baptism, without ever repeating the same 
since we cannot be born twice. Neither does this baptism avail us only at the time when water is poured upon us and received by us, but also through the whole course of our life. Unquote. Wow. Several problems here. That, that is so great. I mean, what our listeners don't know, we have it before us. He skipped, I don't know, what would you say? Probably, Seven, eight, nine lines? Yeah, or even more, where the Belgic Confession actually sounds very Lutheran. It sounds quite Lutheran. There are a few little slip-ups that we would, you know, niggle with, but it's it's I mean, wonderful imagery, right? Christ, who is our Red Sea that we pass through. And right. It's just great. Wonderful stuff here. And then I love how, and when Mike picked up in the reading, how the Belgic Confession makes it very clear. This baptism is, which as the creed says, one time. One baptism for the remission of sins. This is it. Pastor Bross, I just can't tell you the mind-boggling number of times that evangelicals are baptized. Rebaptized all the time, right? All the time. Because... They are looking for some sort of certainty, assurance, or feeling that they don't get because they don't have the sacraments. And even this baptism that they do, even though God is still the one delivering the goods, they don't believe that God does anything through that. And so they are whipping themselves up in hopes that they will get some sort of I don't know, rush of some sort? Feel more secure in their faith. Right, because if they were baptized, A, when they were a baby, they don't remember that. If they were baptized, say, as a child, uh, they just did that because, you know, there was a cupcake given to everybody who got baptized, and they wore special clothing with maybe a flower. Then if they're baptized as a teenager, that's because it was just they went to camp and got all worked up. So now, after living with their sin a lot longer, they're going, man, I just want to make sure. Well, praise be to God, the designers and the architects, so to speak, of the Belgic Confession says, you don't need to do all that. And that whatever you get in baptism remains with you throughout your life. Correct. Is available for you throughout your life. Yes. Yeah. How wonderful. It's great. And, you know, let, let's come up with an image uh, so that people can sort of understand what the, what the Belgic Confession is saying and what Lutherans agree with. Uh, basically, it's like God gives you this great treasury at your baptism, and inside the treasure box are everything that Christ has done. And to you, this is salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And now, you can either take that treasure box and stick it in the attic and later on insulate over it and s sort of forget about it, it's still there, and you can still always get it. And so that's what this confession is saying. This is what Lutherans mean when they talk about the lifelong nature of the one baptism that you have. It's always there. It cannot be alienated from you, even though it's quite possible that you'll think nothing of it and make no use whatsoever of it, as if it's Bitcoin gone bad. And then on top of that, Say an evangelical were to come into a confessional Lutheran church, and he would see pious people making the sign of the cross. Well, his first thought is to think, oh, my goodness, that's so Catholic, and to be dismissive. But what he does not realize is that every time that the 
supplicant is making the sign of the cross, it is in remembrance of that gift in the attic. Right. What they're doing, if you will, is they're going up to the attic, dusting off the box, and opening it up and saying, oh my goodness, look at what the Lord gave me. Right. right? When they make the sign of the Holy Cross. Right. Or actually they're maybe taking it out of the attic. And, and putting, putting it, it on the, the kitchen table. Exactly. Or on the mantle. Right. I love this gift. In the mantle of their heart, yes. I will treasure this gift the rest of my life into eternity. So in the Lutheran confessions, not only will, say, in the Augsburg Confession, they will state what they're for, but they'll also state at the end, most times at the end, sometimes at the beginning, actually, they'll state what they're against. And notice what it says right here where Mike dropped off. The Belgic Confession reads, Therefore, we detest the error of the Anabaptists who are not content with the one only baptism they have once received. Now that is so interesting. Most of your non-denominational churches are a bunch of Anabaptists. Right, so this confession cannot possibly be theirs. Do they put such a thing on their website? Do they? Well, to answer your question, in most of the hip trendy non-denoms, they would never have any sort of substantial list of doctrines. You've talked about this before, uh, and the reason is why. The reason is, is because they feel that doctrine divides, and so as a result of that, we want to make sure that everybody comes in to the fold, because we we care about people. <laughs> and we, we want to see them saved. We don't care if we mislead them. It's just ridiculous. And it's the whole notion of, as we've said before as well, keeping the cookies on the bottom shelf. It's the the dumbing down, not of just America, but of the Holy Catholic Church. And it is also a wonderful church growth tech. No doubt. It's all about getting warm movie seats on Sunday morning. You're exactly right. I mean, any growth consultant is going to say, minimize your distinctives. Uh, for church growth, which is in- interesting because isn't it the case that in, in the competitive world of corporate America, it's distinctives that make all the difference in the world? It's the exact opposite. Right. Our toothpaste actually whitens your teeth better than theirs. Well, folks, guess what? The toothpaste of the Evangelical Lutheran Church <laughs> whitens your teeth <laughs> <Yes>. better. <laughs> you know, something uh, comes to mind here sort of for a person who is out there looking at churches. I mean, could we say this, Pastor Kearns? Would you feel comfortable saying this? If you go to their website and they do not say what baptism is or does, don't even go there, number one. (laughs) Number two, if they don't say that baptism does something, really avoid it. Oh, now I will— If they deny that it does something. The branding is so much more important than the theology. You mean like what their logo and their— threefold motto is? Totally. And really all it is is copy and paste. So you go to the church of what's happening now and you just copy what they say regarding what we believe. I mean, all these websites have, here's what we believe. And they'll say something about God. They'll say something about Jesus. They'll say something about baptism. They'll say something about the Lord's Supper. I mean, there's about 10 or so things not much more than a paragraph written on each one, certainly not what we have before us here with the Belgic Confession. They're going to say a paragraph about it, and then they're going to list about 20 different Bible verses 
in regard to that specific thing, and most Christians, non-Christians certainly aren't looking for that information, but most Christians go, they're biblical. Because they list the Bible passages behind it, but they list them purely as references. Right. Without any explication. No, 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 no. But again, one can make the argument, wouldn't the Mormons do that? Wouldn't the Jehovah's Witnesses do that? Sure. You're, you're right. And what drives the person that goes to the non-denominational church is that they want to be cool. And there's a look how many cars are in that parking lot. They've clearly got something going on there that I need to be a part of. And so the, the pastiche of Bible verses uh, that aren't explicated is enough, is enough to sanctify their desire to be part of the church of what's happening now. There you go. First of all, why do we need pure water? Does this water do something to the recipient that normal water wouldn't? And what in the world is it saying by suggesting that if we get baptized more than once, we're born again more than once? And that the water of baptism does not avail us only when we get wet as babies, but through the whole course of our life? This language about baptism suggests a strong link between the act of baptism and salvation, spiritual birth, and that's the problem. How is that a problem? Especially when the scriptures themselves do the same exact thing. I mean, think about Galatians uh, 3, 26 and 27, where Paul looks back to their one baptism, whenever that was, five years ago, and says, it still is pertinent for you today. That's his whole point. So this is uh, really bad stuff. And you know what? Look, this guy is cherry-picking what he's reading. He's, he's, so you mentioned earlier, Pastor Kearns, that he skipped about you know eight, nine, ten lines here. The very next line after pure water that the Belgic Confession gives is pure water. Now, what does this mean? They say it. Pure water, comma, quote, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So what they mean by pure water is water taken in the name of the triune God to be applied for his purposes. And as we would say as Lutherans, this is the word of God attached to the water. Doesn't matter how dirty the water is. What makes it pure water is the fact that the word is now attached to the water. That's right. And that's what the point of this confession is. So that he's being, he's actually being really snarky and disingenuous here. If anything is connected to saving faith, then we cannot claim faith alone saves us. Okay, so that's exactly what you said at the outset of this second podcast, is that he? this is what he's going to pit baptism against. So he, what he has to do, Pastor Kearns, is he has to throw out the very scriptures themselves. I, I want to read, this is Paul, look at what Paul does here. This is Titus 3. He, he smushes together a rejection of salvation by works with salvation delivered through baptism. God saved us, this is uh, 3.5, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, the rejection of good works, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of everlasting life. This violates the gospel and the confession's own earlier, really clear articulation of the gospel. I can't see any other way to take the wording here. 
there seemed to be some pretty stark oppositions. At best, the wording of the creed is theologically careless. And it's not the only familiar Reformed creed that has that problem. In the next Naked Bible podcast, we're going to be going through the same exercise. Except, next time, we'll take a look at the confusion in the Heidelberg Catechism. Theologically careless, huh? That's what he has said. You know, it, to me, this is this is the arrogance of a 21st century believer, um, just castigating and casting aside what has been thought about really, really hard by the fathers of the church. Now, you and I don't agree with everything in the Belgic Confession. No, but, but boy, we... Would we, would we both say that he, this is more on the spot than where Heiser is? Absolutely. So who's theologically careless? And he's going to do the same thing with other confessions. I can't wait to hear him do that. It's going to be fantastic. This has been a lot of fun. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or St. John LCMS Topeka.org.